Like, okay, uh, we're going to get started um, so that I have enough time to answer all of your questions that you will have at the end of this. Swinging for the fences with that one. Uh, so, uh, I'm Kyle Sapp. I'm the preaching minister at the Cordova Church of Christ. Uh, I have a wife named Erin who is going to school to get her prereqs in nursing and then she will go into nursing school, and then she will graduate and get a job as a nurse, and then we will have two incomes, and the Lord will bless us with many things. Dinkies. Dinkies. Uh, like student loans. Uh, I have a son named Isaac. He's five. He starts kindergarten next year. Every morning he wakes up and goes, is it time to go to the new school? And I say no, and then he says, I'm not going to school today. And I say, your mother will handle this, and I leave. Uh, and then I have two cats, one that I really like, and the other one exists. <laughs> Uh, I'm a big fan of the West Wing. I listened to a podcast. I took <coughs> a piano lesson last week, so uh, I did that. Uh, and I love things. I love to eat. I love to be with friends. And um, I love doing ministry and having this conversation. This is going to be fun for me. Now, I do want to say here at the offset, um, I need to be, uh, I want to approach this very humbly. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I'm a minister. Uh, I think about things through the lens of theology, and I think about things through the lens of people and through uh, my church. Uh, this entire little journey that I've been on for about two weeks began when I started to talk with our members and realized that there was a good number of them who wrestled with some kind of mental illness to some degree. And so this is, this is all just this one massive ongoing conversation for how uh, our church is trying to be able to minister to people who live with mental illnesses. Uh, I also should note that I'm an, I'm an outsider in this conversation to some degree. I've never been diagnosed uh, with a mental illness. Um, my wife has. Uh, she has a general anxiety disorder. Um, she got diagnosed with that about a year ago. Um, she also suffers from seasonal depression. She's had that for as long as I can remember. Uh, the first time she had a panic attack. I was sitting in my office and she called and she said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I said, well, that's not good. And she said, what do I do? Go to the doctor, maybe. And she's like, okay, I'm gonna go to the doctor. And so I was like, well, call me, where are you? And she, she was like, no, I'll drive, it's quicker. Like, okay, um, sure. So I sat in my office for about 30 minutes, like, imagining the scenario where this is the day that my wife dies, and now I'm going to be a single dad and a minister and all that, because uh, two things about me, I'm really selfish, and I go dark quick. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a cynic, that's nobody's fault but my own, um, but I do, I, I come at this as an outsider, and this is my attempt, and everything that we're talking about today is me listening to my friends who struggle from things like uh, clinical depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD. OCD, um, schizophrenia, those uh, kinds of mental illnesses. Uh, my, my friend who has uh, schizophrenia, her name is Jan. Jan came to our church about a year ago, and she said, she said, I have schizophrenia. I said, well, I'm, uh, and your name is? Uh, she's a super open person. Um, she says, I hear demons tell me to kill myself. And I said, well, don't do that. That's not good. Uh, Jesus doesn't want you to do that. She says, are you sure Jesus doesn't want me to kill myself? Yes. There are very few things in this world I'm sure about, Jan, but you killing yourself, that's not on Jesus' to-do list. And so we went through that period, and she was coming to our church for, for periods, and every week, every Sunday, she came up to me, same thing. I'm hearing voices, and you know, we were getting her counseling and getting connected, but she's still coming to church. And then finally, she came up, this is three months into the relationship, and said, you know, Satan told me to kill myself this week. And I said, Jesus says no. And I was like, there you go, Jan. That's good. And I felt really great about it. And then two weeks later, she was in a, a, an institution because she had tried to kill herself. And, you know, and, and I tell that story to illustrate something about this, this topic. It's that this is an up and down journey. And it's not always up. It's not always down. It rises and it falls. And you can go, you can have really good weeks, really good seasons, and then something will click and it goes bad and it goes quick. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, what the church can do uh, to help in those moments. Uh, and so I begin with this premise, and you came with the weirdest title ever, uh, but the goal of this class is to talk about the nature of God. And from that discussion, 
we're going to then extrapolate some ways that the church can live out the character and the nature of God uh, with our friends who live with mental illnesses. Because I believe that the, our view of God sets the course for our faith. What you think about Him, what you believe about Him, uh, that's going to inform how you live your life. And I believe that there is a fundamental flaw in how we experience fellowship and how we offer support, not just to the mentally ill, but to, to most people. And that is this. Someone once said to me, one of my friends and I were talking, said, most church people, maybe most is too broad, but many church people are ill-equipped for helping and supporting people for something that lasts longer than two weeks and requires something more than a casserole. And part of that is uh, we lack empathy. We lack understanding and knowledge and the desire to have those things. And that kind of creates a vicious cycle when it comes to mental illness is that uh, a person uh, makes a bad choice because they're, they're, they're struggling with something. And, and we, without mental illnesses, say, well, that's a bad choice. Why would you make that? And we make them feel bad. We make them feel guilty. And so that leads them kind of further down that road. Uh, and so they feel more alone and more abandoned. And they make more choices that we don't understand and we're afraid of. And so we, we again, we kind of withdraw it's a very natural thing that we do. It's a sinful thing that we do, but it's still a natural thing that we do. And so they continue to spiral as we continue to move away. And this, this kind of feeds into each other. And this is not acceptable. This is not good. This is not from God. And I would argue that part of the problem is that we have a fundamental flaw with how we understand Jesus and the gospel. See, for many Christians, it seems like community is a perk of being in Jesus. What really matters is that I have faith, and Jesus and I, we're cool. And oh, bonus, I get other people who have faith with me as well. That's so neat. Yay! It doesn't matter, though. What really matters is that I'm good with God. I would propose that a more proper understanding of faith must be communal. And I believe this because I believe that God is inherently a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when you think about the gospel as an expression of God's character, and when you think about God's character as inherently communal and relational, then that means that the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is a draw towards community. It's not a bonus. It's not a perk. It's not optional. It is essential. And when you come from that perspective... <laughs> And you think about someone who struggles with clinical depression or someone who struggles with anxiety. And they lack coping skills or they lack language to understand how to reach out to someone. And they live all alone. And they don't get to go to the cool church people parties. You know, like the three cool people at your church that throw parties. And they feel abandoned and outcast and their faith suffers. So first let's talk about the Trinity. That's a fun topic to talk about. It's confusing. It's, it's difficult to talk about the Trinity without falling into heresy. Most of us are accidental heretics. Some of us are intentional heretics, and that's a whole other topic for another day. Uh, we're going to watch a video. It's produced by uh, the Lutheran Satire Group. It's, it's a few years old. They produced it for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and it uh, imagines uh, St. Patrick talking uh, for the first time with some people in Ireland and trying to explain the Trinity to them. So, here we go. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning. And we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Stop picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid, ice, and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! <laughs> <laughs> An ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 of the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! <laughs> okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and
and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. <laughs> Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. That's the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. <laughs> You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program, Voltron, where five robots <laughs> form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Holism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> now let's all put on some giant green foam hats and get as they drunk and vomit from the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. Here we go. <laughs> uh, oh, I love that video. <laughs> Probably more than I should. <laughs> uh, I'm a tenor. I sing, and I sing tenor part, which means that for as long as I can remember, I have sang God is love, because at every youth function that I grew up going to, at some point we sang the greatest commandments. And then we sang it again, and then we sang it again. And as we were getting on the bus to leave, we sang it one more time, because in the 90s, we were just obsessed with that song. <laughs> and that's a biblical doctrine. God is love. Uh, John writes in 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. You know the song that goes back? Yeah, the greatest commands. And there are probably other songs, too. Love is a relational term. It presupposes one who is a lover and one who is loved. And so if God is love, God must have lover and love-e inherently within him. And so within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in this ever-continuing movement of love where all three simultaneously are loved and are love-being. Jürgen Moltmann says it like this, By virtue of their eternal love, they live in one another to such an extent and dwell in one another to such an extent that they are one. The relationship is so intimate that there are lines that distinguish the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but those lines, due to the intimacy, are somewhat blurred. This is why this conversation is so hard to have. Because how do you understand unity and, and purpose and trinity and persons and one and three and three and one? According to math, except for Common Core, that's impossible. <laughs> And so while this beautiful mystery can be difficult to explain, and while we're probably going to fall into some kind of heresy accidentally today, I want to give you uh, my favorite analogy for understanding the Godhead. The first is just this little chart that I like. You know, you've got God, and then God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. And then you distinguish that the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, but they are together. Now... What I like about this, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, is that you have your three persons, and you define them as they have things that they do, and they have things that they do not do. What I don't like about this chart is that it's very static. It's very cold. And that's ultimately, I think, what I don't like about most analogies of the Trinity, is that they are static and cold, like water, ice, and spirit, or gas, 
they don't, you don't intermingle them unless you're drinking a cold glass of water with ice in it. But even then, I don't know where you put gas in all of that. And I don't drink ice in my beverages anyway, so uh, I'm not a Trinitarian drinker. <laughs> the analogy that I like comes from the Middle Ages, and it is known as the perichoresis, which is a fancy word for the circle dance. Uh, I'm from the South. I'm from Alabama, home of the greatest college football team of all time, or at least last year. And my mother, uh, wonderful person, you, you would love her. She's eternally uh, a church greeter, as someone described her to me recently. My mother liked to go line dancing. I did not. That didn't matter. So I spent a lot of my time watching my mom line dance while I sat and wished that this time would end soon. Line dancing is similar to circle dancing, and that's why Southerners like it, because it's hard and very well defined. You stand in a line, everyone does stuff, but don't you dare touch me. I'm really good, you know, and then we go back, and you go forward, and then you pivot, and it's like, yay, every white wedding ever. <laughs> in circle dancing, uh, it's an ancient form where you stand in a circle, you hold hands sometimes, sometimes your hands sort of slightly touch, and sometimes you move around each other while also still rotating. And in some forms of circle dancing, the movement and the music become so fast and so intertwined together that you eventually kind of blur who's where and what and when and why. And this is why I love this analogy for the Trinity, that there are distinct persons in the circle dance, but the ways in which they intertwine and move and, and, and get around each other and interact with each other and interact with us are not so clearly defined. That you experience it, and it's a mystery, and it's not meant to be understood. That's what that video was right about. It's not meant to be understood. It's meant to be experienced. And we see this in Scripture. Uh, one of the first places you see it is uh, Luke 3. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Father speaks, Holy Spirit descends, Son receives. In the Gospel of John, John tells this story. Well, Jesus is talking, says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And in John's passage, we see these these defining of, of relationships. The, the son does what the father, what he sees the father doing. The father doesn't judge, but the son judges. And when you honor the son, you honor the father. It is not that God the father died on the cross. It is that the son died on the cross. It is not that the spirit rose from the dead. It is that the son rose from the dead. And the spirit descended after the son ascended. And so we have this Wonderful little unity in diversity, movement in relationship. This is our God. This is the intertwining of the Godhead. That's why I love this analogy, because it keeps everyone in motion. And I think if you think about movement and motion as a defining characteristic of community, it changes the way you think about community. It goes beyond your church potlucks, where everyone brings pasta except for that one person who was like, we have meat eaters here, let's bring chicken. It goes beyond just showing up to church. It goes into getting into each other's life. And you know, this motion, it's, it draws us together. That's why community cannot be a secondary commitment. It has to be a central commitment. It is a spiritual discipline. And if you consider the New Testament, community is everywhere. Romans chapter 14 through 16. When most of us think about Romans, we think about what it means to be justified by faith. But I wonder if the heart of Romans is actually 14, 15, and 16, where he talks about, do not accept the weaker brother for the purposes of arguing with the weaker brother. And then in Romans 15, he says, accept one another as Christ accepted you. This is the climax that Paul has been building to since the beginning in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about 
you know, the, the sin of the Gentiles. But then he goes and he talks about the sin of the Jews. And then he talks about justification by faith. And his whole purpose there is to say that no one is better than anyone else. And the church must be drawn together and united. We don't get there because we get stuck in Romans 9 through 11 worried about predestination. But we're not Calvinists, so it's not a big deal for me today. First Corinthians. The totality of this letter is about a healthy community. It deals with these different breakdowns and divisions, whether it's, whether it's who's got what teacher and, and saying that, well, my, my, my teacher, my rabbi is better than your rabbi, or whether there's that sexual morality with chapter 6, which none of us really understand how it applies. In chapter uh, 10 and 11, you have the rich ignoring the poor when it comes to communion, and, and there are these great, wonderfully intended communion thoughts that say, see, you're not supposed to eat when you come to communion. You're supposed to eat before communion. But that's not the point of that passage at all. The point of that passage is you have these rich elitist Christians who think that it's okay, because in society it was, that they get to go first, and they're eating all of the food, so then your hungry, lowly Christians come in, and there's no more food left, because they got drunk and fat and happy. And Paul says, no! The point of the body is to be together and united. Philippians. Philippians has this, this beautiful trace of being joyful and then, you know, you should have the attitude of humility and, you know, we sing that song and it's great. And it climaxes, I think it culminates in a conversation at the end of chapter 4, subtly, where he says, by the way, Eudea and, and Syntache, you two need to work something out. And he called, <laughs> very rarely does Paul call people out by name, but he calls them out by name and says, you two must be united. Because the body is about community, because that's what faith is about. The book of Hebrews, although not a Pauline letter, is a beautiful homily that engages the superiority of Christ against all other things as a means to help a community understand what it is like to live together. Community is essential to faith, and here's why. I think it's because we are less when we are alone. We are wired for community, but sin divides us and pushes us away. And so we justify this by saying that, well, church community, not attendance, those are two different things, but church community, if you have it, great. But if you don't, that's fine too. And it's such, it's such an elitist view. <laughs> because everyone who says that usually has community. They have their friends. Mm -hmm. And it gives us an out. We don't have to deal with difficult people if community is not essential. One of the, 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 the great flaw of the American Restoration Movement is that it was born out of this, this sense in the early 1900s, this hyper-individualism that was arising in America. You know, we were formed in the early parts of the 19th century. We just won a war. We got away from the British uh, kingdom. So everyone was like, yeah, we don't need authorities. We don't need popes. We can do, we can think for ourselves. I get to choose. I have choices. I have rights, yada, yada, yada. And if I don't like what this church is saying, well, I'll just go next door to another church. Woohoo! And the American Restoration Movement actually came into that system and said, no, 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 no. This is not what this is about. There's, there's something better here. We don't have to be so divided over our personal choices. And that lasted all of about a hot minute. And then, and then the Civil War hit, and we were like, yeah, we can divide again. Community is at the heart of the gospel. And if it's not at the heart of your gospel, your gospel is lacking. And the reason it's at the heart of the gospel is because community is at the very heart of God. It is love in motion. And this love in motion is something that our friends and our family with mental illnesses desperately need. And yet because of the complex nature of existence, sometimes it feels like while the rest of us are dancing with God as we're dancing with the Trinity and we're, you know, we're I dance like a white person, so I'm very rhythmically off, and that's okay because God loves a dancer of any kind. While we're having our weird flailings of our arms and limbs, our friends with mental illnesses are slowly pushed to the side like junior high kids on the wall at a dance. And it's not, it's not by their choice. It's the unintended consequence of a hyper-individualism that has invaded and plagues our faith. 
And it's not just our movement, it's all movements. And so this morning I want to talk a little bit about how we push people off the dance floor and how we bring them back. Because I think about mental illness like I think about living in the desert. Not that I've ever really lived in the desert, but I've driven through it, so I can imagine. It's dry. It's miserable. It's lonely. You don't know which direction to go. You know there's a direction that's got to be better than this, but you don't know where that is. And so we're going to talk about how we can go and dance with our friends. The first way that we push people off the dance floor is we provide meaningless spiritual platitudes. February 18th of this year, uh, the group Desiring God posted the following tweet. We will find mental health when we stop staring in the mirror and fix our eyes on the strength and beauty of God. Now, to be fair to the group, they were posting a quote from Clyde Kilby, who uh, made the statement in the 70s. And terms were different in the 70s. I imagine I wasn't alive back then. That being said... There's a danger in just, oh, the absolute, it just, yeah. There's a danger here. Even if you did quote what's-his-name. It's a meaningless spiritual platitude to say to somebody who's depressed, well, you just need to pray about it. I don't know why all of my uh, villains' analogies are Southerners. I apologize <laughs> for that. I think I get it from Jeff Walling, honestly. Like, if you ever listen to him when he talks about a conservative, they're like, where, brother? I just don't know. Like, I think that's where I get it from. Question. Is yes? There, is there a grand truth to that, though? We'll talk about that. To say to somebody who is struggling with anxiety, have you prayed about it? Mm-hmm. And left it at that. Mm-hmm. Be like, oh, just pray about it. You'll be fine. I have a friend who has prayed for, who prayed for months and he did better. I have a friend currently right now. She's prayed for years. And she still suffers with depression and anxiety. Spiritual platitudes don't work in the silence of God. And that's a whole other topic that we don't have the time to talk about. See, the problem with these spiritual platitudes is that it presumes that mental illness is a spiritual deficiency. Yeah. It's not. And, and that's why there's... The grain of truth is a very dangerous truth to have. Spiritual, mental illness is not a spiritual deficiency. It's social, it's psychological, it's physical. There, there might be a spiritual element to this, but let's not just jump to that assumption. That's a dangerous assumption to jump to. And the second thing that this does is that it actually blames the person mm-hmm. without even telling them. It's their fault that they have anxiety. It's their fault that they have PTSD. It's their fault that they have OCD. And when you have a person who's struggling to, to sur- just survive, just to make it through the night, just to, I, I, no one wants to have a mental illness. No one wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know what, I would like my brain to haunt me with things that I cannot control or understand. Nobody does that. And they already feel bad about it because they could see everyone else who doesn't have a mental illness, who, who appears happy and frolics through the meadows. And then you throw the guilt to them. You add burden on top of an already burdensome life. And Jonathan Merritt, talking about that tweet, writes, By increasing pressure without offering practical help beyond a spiritual platitude, it becomes cruel and reminiscent of Jesus' description of the Pharisees. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Here's why we tell people to pray their way out of mental illnesses. Because we don't want to deal with it. If I can just say, pray, and then move on. Now you want to, It's okay to, to pray. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not anti-prayer. But pray with them. And don't think that prayer is the only thing. That's the biggest problem with this thing. Is that we are trying to find these simple solutions to these more complex existence and realities. So I want to offer you a couple of thoughts for uh, getting people back on the dance floor. Uh, Recently I started to think about mental illness in the same ways that I think about physical illnesses. I had a buddy uh, a few years back. He got released from his church. And in the exit interview, um, they said, well, you're always gone with your wife supporting her. His wife, 
uh, has a bipolar disorder. And his wife had bad days, and sometimes she had good days. She had more bad than good. She's doing much better now, but at this time, there's a lot going on there. And he was there to support her. And she was also in this exit interview, which, you know, maybe there's a gutsy move there by that elder. She said, well, would it have been different if I had had cancer? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> he didn't say that, but the answer is yes. Yeah. You hear about someone, who, someone who's got cancer, the church will, will announce it. Yeah. Sister so-and-so has cancer, but let us all surround her and we will have a prayer vigil, which is good. Nothing wrong with prayer vigils. With a mental illness, because, and this is because we don't understand it, we get cancer, we don't get mental illnesses. So we're more comfortable supporting them because on some level we get that they didn't choose to have cancer. Just for the record, people with mental illnesses did not choose to have a mental illness. My wife does not choose to have anxiety. And I, I let me just be really clear here, I was very bad in supporting her. <laughs> when it first started. I didn't understand. Like the, the seasonal depression, that, that there were years where I failed my wife because I was just ignorant and prideful and naive. She didn't choose that. And so, when you start, first of all, you have to start thinking about these like physical illnesses. You see people who are suffering not by their own choices, but by external factors that they had very little control over. The second thing I think that is good is we need to learn more from professionals, from people who are qualified to speak on such matters. In our church, uh, we haven't done this yet, but it's, it's in the timeline, to, to offer a class or two led by professional psychologists to talk about, explain what is happening when someone goes through depression or anxiety, what, what someone is experiencing in their brain when they have an addiction, and to discuss the physiological components of all of that. I've noticed that there's a stigma among, among churches with mental illnesses, and, and last year I said that the mentally ill are like modern-day lepers, because we don't understand them. I equate it to kind of the, sim, the stigma that existed when HIV and AIDS was happening in the early 90s. Nobody understood anything that was going on, and so we just kind of ran away from it. Uh, I had a former secretary at Cordova in the 90s. She was at some other church. Her husband was a sheriff, and he had gotten in contact with a, with a dirty needle, and he developed AIDS. Mm. And they couldn't tell anyone at their church. And he suffered alone. And she well, they suffered alone. Because that, that was the time. I mean, we can look back and think, oh, that was so horrible. But the reality is, I probably would have done the same thing, because I didn't know. I was ignorant. Ignorance breeds stigma. We are afraid of that which we do not understand. And so one thing that you've got to do is you've got to learn from people who do know what they're talking about. And I mean in your churches. I mean going to your elders and your preachers and saying, there may be some people in our church who struggle with this. And it would be good, even if they're not in our church, which they are, even if they're not, they're in our community. And we want to minister to them. And they need a community. So what can we do? How can we learn? Third, um, I would offer not just, not just a class, but offer some quality training for being able to identify symptoms. Now, I want to be super clear here. There are some programs out there that, that sell themselves as, we're going to turn your lay people, which is such a silly word, turning your lay people into lay counselors, and they will be able to diagnose mental illness. And I'm thinking... Yeah, we're not using that. <laughs> at best, non-professionals need to at least be aware of symptoms and be aware of how to react in those symptoms and then have the knowledge and the humility to say, well, let's get you some help from a qualified person. Now, you can have this conversation in your own mind about whether they need to be a Christian counselor or not. My choice, this is me personally, is I just want them to be good at their job. And I've known a lot of Christian counselors who were not. And I've known a lot of non-Christian counselors who were not good at their job. So you do you. Everyone is free to make their own decisions. Um, and the, ironically, the two counselors that I recommend to people are Christians, but they are not Christian counselors. They're psychologists who also happen to be Christians. 
It's like the band Creed. That's a bad analogy because that's a bad analogy. <laughs> I hope they're better counselors than Creed as we, a band. We all hope. Right. But you know what? It, it is what it is. Anyway, uh, the National Alliance of Mental Illness is a very good place to start for this. They have programs. Uh, I haven't done this, but it's called FaithNet. It's sponsored by NAMI. Uh, it looks fairly decent. It's on our to-do list at Cordova. It hasn't done yet. We're still in that beginning process of, of informing and talking and doing all of that. Also, there's a small group material. This is a great place to start this. There's a small group material by a lady named Amy Simpson. She wrote a book called Troubled Minds, Responding to Mental Illness, and she has small group material about it. It's six sessions that talk about uh, a Christian response to mental illness. It talks about why they're suffering, uh, and then it talks about some different ways that we can support people. What's that again, that. Kyle? Amy Simpson? I've got it right here. Okay, cool. uh, this is the book. Uh, she has a small group material as well. Um, I'm gonna, I don't know if you'll write all these in time. If you need them, just talk to me later. Uh, Darkness is My Only Companion by Catherine Green McCree. Uh, she, oh man, she suffered, suffers from, I want to say depression, and her brother suffered from bipolar disorder. Uh, this book, I just want to say, maybe not the first book you start with. It's dark. Mm -hmm. It's raw. It's honest. It's it's beautiful in its honesty. Let me be clear about that. It's magnificent, but it's hard to read. Um, one of, we started um, eating dinner with a young couple. The wife suffers from anxiety and depression, and she was going through a crisis of faith. And so I asked her, what, what would help you believe that God exists? Like, help me understand what, what, what you're dealing with. And she said, I, I think it would just help to know that people loved me. I said, okay, sweet. I can do that. So... For seven months, uh, they came over every Wednesday, and we had dinner. And at first, we started reading this book together, and then we stopped about halfway through because she, she said, it's, it's too much for me right now. Like, I love the first part, but then it starts to get too honest, and, and I love that I'm not alone. I love a lot of this book. It's too much for me right now. It's like, yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, Bipolar Faith by Monica Coleman. Uh, I love this book because... It, it takes uh, mental illness from the perspective of someone who lives in the black community of America, and mental illness in, in the African-American community, it's, it's convoluted. Um, but these three books are great. These are not psychologists. I'm not entirely sure what Amy does. Um, uh, but there are other books. This, these are good places to start. They're less clinical. They're more narrative-based. Um, Amy grew up with, uh, and this is why I love Amy's book, is she grew up with parents, uh, a mom who was bipolar, and she talks about how the church reacted to her. And sometimes it was good and sometimes not so much. Okay, uh, another way we push people off the floor is that we see problems, not people. We label them. We see the illness. We see a problem to be solved, not a person. This is not a problem, by the way, that's wholly unique to mental illness. We label people in all kinds of ways. Liberal, conservative, mm -hmm. Good, bad. We see them as puzzles to be figured out. As problems to be solved. And so we will label them and we'll miss the whole person. Mental illness is not the thing that defines my wife. It's a part of her story. But Erin is a beautiful mom. And she thinks I'm hilarious. <laughs> and she is kind-hearted. And, a, and an introvert that keeps me grounded. There's so much more to my wife than, than having an anxiety disorder. And it's a part of her story. And, and if you go into these relationships and you just see the mental illness, one of my friends, Sarah, I, I asked her to read over this, and she said, make sure you say, don't befriend someone with a mental illness just because they have a mental illness. Um, she's had that happen at our church, which, which is better than nothing, maybe. Uh, and she said, it just gets really awkward. And they're like, so, how's your depression today? <laughs> Good? Like, bad? Like, like, <laughs> like, and that's all they would ask about. And, you know, Sarah, Sarah's going to be a mom soon. And they bought a puppy. And the puppy's awesome. And Sarah is a, is a chemist, and she's brilliant and smart. And she never lets me forget that. <laughs> I think we're all very well-meaning with this, by the way. I think we want people to be healed, but we don't want people to suffer. 
But we don't, we're not called to fix people. We're called to love people. And, and I think a, a part of this problem is because when you don't understand the complexities of mental illness, you think that there are just simple solutions to it. You think you can just pray your way out of it. You think you just take some medication, you know, get a coping skill, and then it's all going to be good. <laughs> but that's not going to happen. Uh, I, uh, if, you think about, uh, if you think about healing, uh, I, I don't know why I tried to be drawing this. Imagine a wave. Healing is not a linear process. It's up and down. And I'll tell you, we're great at, heal- at, at supporting people in the, the ups of the waves. And we're great at supporting people when they're going up to the up of the wave. But when they start to go down, and when they get to the valley, when they make choices that are sinful, because they don't know, they, they can't, they, they actually cannot make a better choice. They don't have the mental capacities in those moments. That's when we start pulling away. And think, well, it's a slippery slope. If we allow sin into the church, then it's just going to go rampant, and you've got to bring instruments into the church. (laughs) (laughs) And the irony of all of this is this is where people with mental illness need us the most. It's great to be up here. It's great to be fun, but they're already happy. They need us here. Because God meets us in the deserts. God doesn't just fix us in those moments. Kate Bowler wrote a book recently called uh, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved. Everyone should read this book. Uh, Kate is uh, just a phenomenal human being. She wrote another book. She, she wrote a history of the, um, the health and wealth gospel. Uh, Kate uh, works at Duke, and uh, re- two, three years ago, she got diagnosed with stage four cancer. Ooh. And let me tell you, there's nothing harder than having a bunch of health and wealth prosperity gospel people be your friends when you have stage four cancer. And so she writes this book. It's this beautiful story, and she wrestles with so much. There's so much in this. Everyone should read this. Should buy this book. Go to Amazon right now. Get it. It's wonderful. Bowler, B O W L E R. Kate. W L E R. Yes. Uh, Everything happens for a reason. Recently, she wrote, What if whole does not mean healed? And she's writing that from a context of cancer. But I wonder if there's a part of that that applies to, to mental illness. What if instead of treating mental illness as a problem to be fixed, we treat it as an important part of someone's story? It's not, not something they have to hide. It's not something they have to be ashamed of. Without downplaying the struggle, and I want to be very careful here, without dismissing the pain... No, I don't want to over-spiritualize anything. Can we possibly see depression? Can we possibly see bipolar disorders as a part of a person to be loved, not simply something that they have to get over? And I think this starts by remembering that we are all beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. All of us. Even in our depression, even in our anxieties, we are still image bearers of God. And I think that we remember that that God is the God who redeems us from within the nightmares. He rescues us from within the desert. But more than that, he joins us in the desert. Mm -hmm. The rescue doesn't happen overnight. You want to read a really good book in the Bible about being in the desert? Read the book of Lamentations. God speaks not a word in the book of Lamentations. And in the silence... God is there to listen to everything that the writer is going through and processing. And even in the midst of that, he can say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercy never comes to an end. But that's not the end of the book of Lamentations anyway. That's chapter 3. As he says that in chapter 3, and then chapter 4 and 5, is like, and everything sucks. <laughs> that's in the Hebrew. Yep, that's it. <laughs> yep. See, it is possible to live in misery and anger and frustration and still believe that God is good and God is great. And that maybe, maybe without saying God gave you this mental illness for a reason, there's got to be a better way of saying this, but maybe we can say that God works through and in us, that God redeems even the darkest nights of the soul. Now that doesn't always happen in ways that we can communicate or understand, and that doesn't happen quickly or easily. 
But the story of Scripture is that God redeems. And he brings beauty out of the darkness. Uh, Romans 8. Did I remember? No, I forgot that. No, I didn't. Okay. Romans 8. You know the Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation, nor mental illness will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if mental illness cannot separate us from the love of God, then it shouldn't separate us from the church. And so we have to find these ways of fostering communities and treating people like people. So there are a couple of ways. It needs more than knowledge. It's good to have knowledge. Knowledge is helpful, but it also needs a face. I don't think about mental illness as some abstract thing. I think about Jim and Sarah and Aaron and Amber and Jim and some other friends. They're people. And so one of the ways that we do this is we create spaces for testimonies and experiences. That's not what you do first, I don't think. It's not what we did. What we did was I did a sermon series about it. And we got people comfortable with being able to talk about it. Our next step is to put a face on it. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. In your churches, people probably already know anyway. It's not some... Dirty little secret. I mean, it's probably treated like a dirty little secret, but these things are already known. We just need to start talking about them publicly. Another thing that we did is uh, we have experiences that just try to, to help you understand the mindset. So I want to show you the 60-second video um, about what it's like to wake up with an anxiety disorder, I believe. Now, that has a happy ending because yeah. the person gets out of bed. Yeah. But that's not always the case. My wife taught me, after a long time of beating it into my head, that sometimes you can't, feel, you can't help how you feel. You are allowed, I'm allowed, we are all allowed to feel how we feel when we feel. And that's okay. Our feelings aren't necessarily truth. But they are reality. And we need to respect each other's reality. And we need to be able to have freedom to feel. And so this other part about not only creating spaces for testimonies and experiences is that we must foster dialogues on feelings. We need to foster our dialogues for our own feelings, for those of us who do not have a mental illness. It's okay. You need to be honest about that topic and how you feel about this. Some of us are afraid about mental illness. Some of us are afraid about what it means to have depression. What does it mean for my friend? We, we go to like the, the suicide. Some of us are afraid of, of saying the wrong thing. And those with mental illnesses, they're afraid of being labeled, of being known as, as the bipolar guy, mm. as the dude with PTSD, as the one who's just tolerated but not welcomed. And so in having testimonies, there has to be this space where you and I and we and your people are free to come into a place and say, you are allowed to feel how you feel when you feel, and I'm not going to judge you, and you're not going to judge me, and we're going to enter into a covenant together. And in that expression, that's going to build authenticity. It's going to build honesty. It's going to improve not only our knowledge, 
but, 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 our, but our understanding of people, the worst thing you can do is just pity a person who has mental illness, to just look at them and feel sorry for them. We have to make a concentrated effort to understand each other. And we have to make a constant effort to do this together. The hardest thing for me is to understand that I have limits. I know. You look at me and you're like, Kyle, you look limitless. <laughs> I know. I know. It's true. It's true. You should see my basketball skills. They are that. <laughs> uh, there, there are some members of our church that I, I'm not counseling because I'm not a counselor, but I'm supporting. But I have boundaries set in place. And, and one of my friends, whom I love, his name is Marvin, he loves to push those boundaries. If I tell Marvin we're meeting at 9, he's going to show up at 8.15. If I, if I, if I tell Marvin, I'm, I'm, we have a student breakfast on Thursdays, and he's not allowed to eat there because he's an adult, he hasn't been fingerprinted, it's a whole thing. And Marvin, you cannot come for student breakfast. He's then going to ask me, well, can you buy me this from Starbucks? And it's always going to be like the most expensive thing on the Starbucks menu. Like that's just the pattern we've laid out. And I'm going to say, no, Marvin, I'm not going to do that. And then Marvin's going to call me, and he's going to ask me for money. I'm going to say, no, Marvin, I'm not going to do that. But I'll meet you at 9, and we can talk. And Marvin will cancel on me. And I'll say, okay, Marvin. But if you change your mind, I've blocked that time out. And inevitably, Marvin will text me and say, okay, I want to meet tomorrow. Okay. I pointed out this pattern to him one day, and I said, this, this has been going on for a while. I said, Marvin, here's the pattern I see with you. You get upset about something, and you cancel. And then you text me at like 11 o'clock at night. You have until 6. If you change your mind by 6, we will meet. I've blocked that time off. I'm not going to change that. It's yours. But you have to let me know my 6. And 10 minutes later, you're like, okay, I want to meet. You have to have boundaries. And in having boundaries, you have to have other people helping, surrounding each other. You don't have to carry someone's burdens alone. You carry them as a church, as a family. Maybe it means hosting a support group. Um, I asked our people who were willing to talk about that, and they're like, nah, I don't, that's not for me, and that's, that's fine. But I know other churches have those. Or I know of one church that has it, and Amy talks about it in her book. Maybe it means just hosting a lunch. And if you know people who have mental illness in your church, whatever it is, hosting a lunch and saying, hey, we all struggle, we're all broken. You don't have to hide in this group. And finally, I think we have to foster grace for all people. I like this quote about Eeyore. It says, One awesome thing about Eeyore is that even though he is basically clinically depressed, he still gets invited to participate in adventures and shenanigans with all his friends. And they never expect him to pretend to feel happy. They just love him anyway, and they never leave him behind or ask him to change. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I've noticed that sometimes our members who struggle particularly with depression and anxiety get left out of social activities. And it doesn't happen at first. It, it's, it's usually a, a, a series of events. They get invited someplace, and, the, and then they don't show up. And then get invited someplace, and they don't show up. And eventually you start to feel like that you label them as a flake. Mm-hmm. But, but this happened to back in my stupid days, like a few years ago. Um, there was an event at, at, our, at our church when I was a youth minister, and we had this, like, it was like an elders' dinner Christmas thing. And Aaron was like, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to great. But then, like, three hours before the event, her depression just really hit in, and we didn't go. And I got mad. And I said things that I should not have said. Not bad words, but mean words. We assume that people are flakes without even knowing the story. And, and we assume, we're like, oh, it's so hard when they cancel because we make plans. And it absolutely is. But think about it from their perspective. It's so hard to be the person that cancels, to wake up and think, this afternoon I'm going to meet with my friends, we're going to have a barbecue, it's going to be great. And then it, the, the day goes great. And then an hour before the event, something clicks and you just cannot leave the house. And over time, we just let those people go because we don't understand. We just assume. Because we like to assign motives. And the more awareness you bring, the more openness you have, the more grace is able to abound. 
And the more you were able to say, hey friend, my friend uh, Josh and Amber have struggled with this for, for years, and uh, they were really the first people to help me understand this pattern. And so we would make plans, and, and, and we said, if you're able, let's have dinner on this night. Now, our schedules are so crazy that we have to plan these things out seven weeks in advance, because that's the kind of person I am. Um, and i say, if you're able. And if you're not able, that's okay. I understand. We'll try again. Seven weeks down the road. And there's something so very freeing about that relationship. And I love them to death. It's not easy. I'm not like... Sarah and Connor, when they come over, there are some nights where I want to strangle Sarah. And there are some nights where I, like... You give me that look. I'm like, she's a difficult person at times. <laughs> and there are some nights where it's like, I count, because I know what time they're going to leave, because uh, they've got school, and so I count those minutes, and then they leave, and I shut the door, and I look at my wife, and I hold up a finger, because I want to make sure that they walk away from the apartment, because I don't know how soundproof our apartment is. And it's like, oh! Do we have to have them back next week? Because I just don't know if I can do this anymore. I heard that. <laughs> but I rest. And some weeks we didn't meet. And, and we rested. And we calmed down. And they calmed down. And, and we're still friends. And we don't meet now because their schedules don't coincide. We're going to start back again in the summer. I love them to death. And, and I... I all I care about, and the thing that I want you to hear from this journey is that they're people. And they need Jesus, and they need the church to reach out. And it's not fair of us to expect someone with a handicap to be the person that reaches out to us. We have to reach out to them. Because that's what God does, right? And God doesn't say, you clean yourself up and then we can talk. God sends his son who dies. And God sends his church out. To bring back, like lost sheep. We do that because that's who God is. At his very core, he is a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at our very core is a community of flawed, broken, but beautiful people. So we have two minutes for questions. If you have questions, if not, I'm going to drink a glass of water and be done. Any thoughts, comments, cries of anguish? Want to tell me why I'm wrong? Hi. Safety. Yes. Right. So, thank you for for bringing that up, uh, Marvin. I don't know Marvin very well, and so Marvin and I only meet in my church office, yeah. and my window is up, and I make sure to tell ministry staff. You cannot leave for an hour. So boundaries. Again. Yeah, it's a, it's about safety and boundaries. I, I think coincide, and it, you know, it's like some people are just not equipped to dealing with that kind of anger, and and that's okay. Um, that's about knowing your limits, I think. Any questions, thoughts? So one of the worst things you can do is tell someone who's doubting whether they're saved or not because they have this, this doubt problem. It's a doubting disease, maybe you know, mm-hmm. part of the mental illness. Uh, to quote Revelation 20:21, 20, it says, "Quote doubters will doubters will be damned." Literally, it's a, it's in Bible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you can tell someone who has, who has anxiety you can't say ever have a sense of peace, even the hard they try, how many times they've prayed, um, filled you know, four sex, you know. Oh, anxiety is sin. Sin yeah. have anxiety because that is don't be anxious. So if you're anxious, you're sinning. And so shoot the anxiety. Right. A person with depression, you know, tell tell them that uh, you know godly grief leads to death. A worldly worldly sorrow leads to death. You know, when you walk away and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to say. Yeah. The other question, though, these platitudes you're talking about, I said there's a great entry to them. And it says, let me see if I ask this question. It's a, it's a challenging question, what you said there. Um, but um, in terms of the great truth, you said they, don't, they didn't choose to have mental illness. Well, like, any more than people choose to have cancer. Well, people make choices that lead to getting cancer. Or Some people do. Okay. Um, Maybe they ate a lot of carcinogens all their life, and maybe that was before they knew what, the, what carcinogens were. Maybe they weren't paying attention or, or didn't care when they should have or could have been more careful to eat that big carcinogens, and they got cancer. It was part of their choice. 
Not that you blame them. You're, you're, you know, dumb guilt on or whatever. The point sure. is that, and maybe just like Vanilla was, good to know this part, all should be part, as you said, there's a spiritual component. Good enough to be sin that leads to that. Uh, here, here's the thing. So, so think about it like this. Part of, part of the solution is, is to get rid of the sin part. Right. Think about it like this. Um, causes are can be physical. They can be spiritual. Uh, they can be mental. Social. Social, and they can be social. That includes their background growing up. What I would say to your response is, yeah. It depends on the person. Love always goes into context. Yeah. You, the flaw is that we assume that it's a spiritual problem. Yeah. You do the research. Yeah. You don't go into a relationship thinking you know the person. You go into the you go into the relationship wanting to love the person, and and you and you learn context. Context is as important in life as it is in the Bible. Yeah. And usually it's one of three. Just because verses mentally doesn't mean they don't have. Them. The same struggles with right, right or right. wrong every single day. Right. And, and the other thing is that you look at Romans 8, you know, this is a whole list of things that don't separate us from the love of God. Depression and anxiety doesn't. But one thing that's not listed there is sin. Sin does separate us. So, um, in the sense that, but of course, that's what the blood of Christ is for when we repent of our sin. But if, if unrepentant sin is part of the problem or part of what caused the problem, that needs to be addressed as part of that. Sure, but don't go into the con. Don't. My point is that you shouldn't assume that you know that that's part of the problem. And yeah. too often we just go there, like, and we like, shouldn't go there. Like a psychologist on the radio who said to diagnose someone within 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day.